Today's Plugged In podcast is sponsored by Volvo. Get ready to recharge this summer with Volvo's first pure electric SUV. The XC40 Recharge has no tailpipe emissions yet delivers more than 400 horsepower and up to 335 kilometers on a single charge. And with integrated Google OS, stay connected on any journey, even without your phone. Enjoy an SUV designed for you and the world we share. Visit volvocars.ca to learn more. the latest episode of Plugged In, post-media podcast taking you down Canada's electric vehicle highway. I'm your host, Andrew McCready. This week, we take a slight deviation from electric vehicles to talk about autonomous driving technology. As listeners of this podcast discover every week, the EV revolution is well underway. But despite making headlines and bold predictions for a decade now, the self-driving revolution seems to be stuck in park. The only time we really hear about it is when a Tesla crashes due to an autopilot issue, actually more often than not a human error issue, or when a pizza chain unveils a driverless delivery vehicle. But don't be fooled. Thousands of engineers and designers are working every day toward that autonomous future. To find out where that technology stands today and how that future will unfold, my guest is Mark Concanon, CEO of California-based Concanon Business Consulting, and an expert in emergent technologies who has worked with a number of automakers, including Hyundai and Mercedes-Benz. Thanks very much for joining us today, Mark. Thank you for having me. I always ask my guests the first question, which is uh, the first EV they ever drove. But given your level of expertise, I'm going to ask you, what was the first autonomous vehicle you were driven in? Certainly. So, like most folks in this space, the first experience was with Google, but what I found is that there's been so much change and growth that the most exciting for me was more something that most consumers might never get to experience. Faraday Future had a vehicle they were designing from the ground up to be autonomous. So there was a lot of excitement around that. Unfortunately, we'll never probably get to see that in the consumer marketplace, but it was Filled with distractions, as we all know, is one of the major areas of concern for drivers today that the automotive manufacturers are trying to engineer away from. And it's exactly what they're building into the vehicles of the future for autonomous. Right. So a basic question, why do we need autonomous vehicles? Well, there's absolutely practical application to this. Um, A major area that is always easy to cite is around convenience factors. Uh, But more importantly, we've for decades now, uh, as a society, been focused on reducing the deaths due to vehicles. And one of the major areas that autonomous definitely brings is a level of safety that's already two to three times safer than a human. If one can get to five to 10, uh, we believe we'll see general public be more accepting of handing over control of the vehicle to the artificial intelligence. So the point of this being uh, absolutely a big piece of this is uh, convenience. A piece of it is uh, safety for the future. And there's there's major uh, ROI in that as a society in addition to real dollars for business. 
So you talk about like the level five to 10, where are we at right now? I mean, 2021, what's the current state? Yeah, we're more like two to three right now. And I think, and so what'll happen a lot is, you know, we're familiar with these challenges due to uh, our exposure in the space and the work we do with OEMs. Um, but right now you're going to be hard pressed to find anyone want to publish that level of insight uh, publicly. Uh, so as such, it's more of, you know, um, empirical data that exists and it's currently being focused on to get to the level where consumers will accept it. And that's a big piece of the push here is we need to make sure people feel safe. You know, there's little things you can see today where um, you'll see the videos of a Tesla driving itself to the owner when it's in parked and the nature of how it interacts or how it drives feels a little jerky, maybe too quick to some people's perception. Um, it cuts corners closely, doesn't hit anything, or right? it's safe technically, but our feeling about it doesn't necessarily coincide or jive with uh, the data, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So do you think Tesla, I mean, as you say, I mean, they're kind of at the forefront in the public's mind of this, you know, the autopilot system. Are they helping or harming the case for autonomous vehicles? Now, that's always a tricky one because a big piece of this becomes a conversation about sort of the cult of personality of Elon Musk and his approach to let's just get out there and He's not as extreme as maybe Facebook was years ago saying, let's break things and fix it later. He's definitely not looking to break anything, but he absolutely is putting it in the forefront of the mind. And then when something happens, like a Tesla crashes and, and the driver dies, that becomes what people hold on to. So there's definitely some challenges with that. The good news is there's enough excitement, especially among, you know, we, we look at some of the trends in American society around the tendency towards younger people to even care about getting a driver's license which of course is significantly down over previous generations. This is something they get excited about because they have much more faith in the technology necessarily than maybe you or I would as an average consumer of our age. Okay, you mentioned that it's kind of the people element, the acceptance by drivers, by consumers to, to accept this. I mean, doesn't government regulation play into this big time? Absolutely, there are some major issues or I should say concerns around how does insurance work? Um, to your point, what's the government's role in all of this? Uh, if in the past we had to get vehicles certified for emissions, when new technology is being deployed, how do you certify those for safety as there's updates and new, new components? Uh, so yes, there's a role for government, uh, there's a role for the insurance industry, and then there's the role of the OEMs, uh, which of course many more are upstarts uh, like Tesla uh, coming into the space who don't have the decades, right? So just Toyota, for example, 50 years in the United States working with, with our governments on how to be safe and what to report and, and how to manage these things. And as we go to uh, autonomous vehicles, a lot of what's happening is in the computer. So it becomes a lot more difficult for outside parties. So there's a level of trust and, and reporting in, um, transparency that needs to be established between the OEMs and the government to make sure we're all holding ourselves to the right level, the right standard. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're in Canada here and I guess, obviously, I mean, let's look forward to when the borders reopen, but there's lots of cross traffic. So it's not only just one government, it's not just like the United States government or the Canadian government. It's, it's a VHS beta thing. Almost everybody's got to be on the same page globally for this. And that seems like a massive undertaking. That's absolutely correct. And I think that's where we're going to see, and we're already seeing certain countries. So in Europe, there's more uh, leniency, or I should say experimentation around long distance trucking, where it's artificial intelligence. 
you know, we're going to see them begin to establish some of the rules and expectations. Uh, to your point, uh, Canada will come with its own approach. Uh, in the United States, we have certain cities that are more open to this concept and experimenting. So I think you're right. It's going to be um, both bottom up as we try little pockets that are willing to try this as a business and how do we explore and support it and then top down getting coordination between the governments across the world to make this work right. Absolutely. As you mentioned at the top, this whole idea is, is safety is such a huge element. The safety really is a function of the fact that these vehicles talk to each other and know where they are. And obviously they're doing that on a cloud system. And I mean, is that 5G? Is that too simplistic? I mean, do we need 5G to have autonomous vehicles? Is that where we're at? Well, the first thing to keep in mind is, you know, when we talk about autonomous, there's, you know, the different levels, the five levels of what autonomous can look like. And most of the OEMs are going to try to skip the part where they have to, like the, a lot of them are trying to avoid Tesla's model of the person's in the car and uh, they have a wheel, but they're not always required, but they're kind of required because it's just a gray area, right? And a lot of them that are historic are going to be much more um, hesitant and cautious about playing in that gray. So the point being that they will always, uh, if we think about the adoption of technology in the marketplace, autonomous car isn't going to show up and then overnight there's no old cars. So what they're going to have to do is navigate this world with a mixed set regardless. And so to your point about 5G, no, it's not that 5G is going to solve the problem. There won't be a single technology that makes that shift. They're going to come to market and they're going to work without 5G. They're going to work without communicating with infrastructure. They're going to work without talking to other cars. They have to be self-sufficient. And then these other things will improve the safety and improve the adoption and be rolled into helping us all. One of the major things that we believe will start happening is we'll see more traffic, meaning in, let's take Los Angeles or, or Vancouver, major cities that can have traffic challenges. We believe we're going to see a negative impact on traffic when autonomous cars get to a high enough volume in those markets because those cars are so conservative to follow every rule. And a lot of times when you see a consumer on the road, if everybody's doing 80 miles an hour, they're doing 80 miles an hour. Uh, the autonomous car won't do that. It's going to follow the rules. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating rollout. You know, as you mentioned, Google car, you you know, there's lots of footage on YouTube of autonomous cars, a single one driving around a neighborhood and it works, but you throw, you know, maybe 10 of them into that mix and then all these other, you know, human driven cars. And it just seems like it's, it's almost like a, I don't know, like an, a, a Terminator kind of a situation where you've got uh, the humans against the machines. And, and what you'll find is, uh, fortunately, unlike Terminator, these cars will be overly cautious, right? They'll be watching, and we experience it today. Uh, it wasn't autonomous, but as some of this technology is being applied to today's vehicles, we've observed cases where a vehicle's driving and there's a cone out in the road that's not even in the lane, but if you make the shift between maybe the right lane to the left lane and it sees the cone, it'll think it's a person and overreact. So what we're seeing is this impact that's a result of overly cautiousness um, and so what seems to be more of a risk is that people, and this is a lot of the data that Google had collected previously, a lot of the accidents that happened, either it was a person who was driving the car or someone else hit it. Uh, it was not the autonomous car made a mistake and hit anybody. It was somebody else hit it. So there's a lot of that, that the humans are going to be the challenge still. It's fascinating. I mean, even from an ethical standpoint, I mean, there's been so much written about that when it comes to autonomous cars. You know, about five years ago, I was at the Mercedes-Benz lab in Silicon Valley, and it was all about 
the ethical choices that cars will make. And, um, you know, something, something is simple. It's not, this isn't really ethical, but the point was if a tree fell across a lane or a road and it was a, or a solid line, essentially the car has been taught you can't go across a solid line. So would that car just sit there forever as opposed to the human would just kind of assess the situation, look down the road, no cars coming, cross the line, go around the tree and on their way. I'm telling that story simply because it just seemed like there were infinite number of situations on the road that as humans, we take for granted, but for machines, you actually have to program them to address that. Absolutely. And you're touching on exactly what it's about the edge cases. And that's why volumes of data is so important. And that's where Tesla and Google really lead in that area of having so many experiences on the road and so much data captured and all the different sensor inputs to then identify another great example of an edge case we saw as part of data that was being captured by a test autonomous car was there was two people on a bicycle, bicycles riding down the side of the street and one had a stop sign under his arm that he was riding away with. So to your point, the car would have interpreted that as a stop sign. So do they, does it stop all of a sudden? Does it, it so it's, yeah, there's these edge cases and that will be the key to making these two level five. So we can get there, no steering wheel, the car does everything for you truly autonomous all of those edge cases have to be handled yeah and the reality is the lab for these cars is the real world i mean ideally you could have a, a city set up somewhere that was artificial and just let these cars figure it out but the reality is as you say they're going to have to learn on the job as it were which again seems such a daunting task it does and what's exciting is one of the pieces and this doesn't only apply to autonomous this in general is teaching training ai What's really exciting is we're seeing some overlap between the virtual world and AI training. So to your point, the best case scenario is you're putting a vehicle into the real world. The next best thing is you can actually train them on an artificial world. So putting them into the virtual space with all the physics applied and they visualize the people and rain and dogs running in the street and are able to test a lot of how they would respond and train them in those models rather than having to do the real world to get us ready for the next step. Now, is each manufacturer going to have to do that themselves, or is there a sharing of this information? As you mentioned, Tesla obviously famously has the cameras on all the time, and all this is being fed back to a big server every second of the day, and it's it has that data case, but Mercedes doesn't have access to that. So how does that work? So that's a big piece of the co-opetition, right? So that's a, a lot of what, for example, Uber, right? They want to get to a spot. It's very publicly known. They'd like to get autonomous cars to be the solution that when you're calling an Uber, there is no driver. It's the car just came. So uh, the answer to your question is there is partnerships that exist and within those there is sharing, but there's a lot of lack of partnership as well uh, because of course, everybody wants to be the first one to unlock the real power of this and own this space. So we don't believe you're going to see Tesla or Google sharing their data with the other third parties. It's up to those third parties to build that data set themselves. Right. So it's almost like that could be a role where a government would kind of say, you know, we're the clearinghouse for this information. We're going to set up this system that it all gets fed into. But again, I, I mean, it's private information from companies and they'll be very reluctant to do that. Yeah, I think what we're going to see more of is the governments will be setting the testing standards for how, what level of edge case, use case, application, weather patterns, road types you can get certified for. I think that's what we're going to be seeing, and they may have more of a role in the certification program. Uh, we don't believe that they'll successfully get uh, organizations to cross-share data and insights given the competitive nature. 
are there parts of the world or let's say a country that are better suited for autonomous vehicle networks? I mean, are there places where you think it'll be there and then in five years it'll be over here? Honestly, likely there'll be parts of the world that tend to be more early adopters. The challenge is a lot of those places are towards the Netherlands or Sweden. There's like parts of um, the governments that really believe in building out the future and being early adopters. The downside is a lot of those parts of the world also will have a lot of the weather challenges that like snow, ice, sleet that will um, delay some of the testing and progress. So what we're seeing is the two sides. One side, um, parts of the world like Phoenix, Arizona, where, yeah, there's rain, but the weather is pretty consistent and you can depend on pieces uh, are geared towards it. Other areas that are more politically uh, accepting of new technology uh, might have local other challenges, like weather, for example, that will create um, delays in their adoption or their impact. So probably not an easy answer around that one, other than definitely the governments that are going to be uh, more welcoming and willing to sort of, sort of go back to the earlier conversation about play in the gray not knowing the answers and, and working together with industry are where we'll probably see the fastest movement. Hacking is always a concern when it comes to technology. I mean, it seems like every day now we're hearing about some big corporations uh, database that has been hacked. Is that, I mean, where do we stand with that in autonomous vehicles? Surely that must be something that, that keeps some of these uh, engineers up at night. It's absolutely a risk because a piece of the first step going to market is going to be the autonomous vehicles have the ability to be driven like a drone. So a part of what that includes, obviously, is access into the vehicle with full control. Uh, so there's, there's always risk. So the good news is, obviously, everyone's very aware of that. And from the ground up, building the vehicles to be protected and secure and multiple layers of security at the vehicle level, at the cloud level, back over um, in the operating components. So it's a top of mind, always a piece of it. And there's a lot of investment in making sure that as we make these sort of first generation come to market that the risk is low, right? The reality, of course, is you can never have zero risk when it comes to hacking because uh, you can always have even bad actors in your own organization. And the optics of one bad situation when it first begins is going to just reverberate around the world and, and put the whole program back on its heels, right? Absolutely. So you mentioned Europe is kind of a little forward thinking in terms of uh, commercial vehicles, trucks, obviously things like delivery vans and transport trucks just seem like such a natural for this technology. I mean, I've seen footage of these kind of autonomous trucks flying across the Australian outback for days. And, you know, it's quite incredible, but there are issues with that, right? I mean, we're hearing from organizations, unions, truck drivers, and things that have a big problem with that. How do we bridge that gap? Well, this is always one of the challenges of industrial you know, shifts in economies, right? If you talk about coal mining or oil drilling or the you know um, expiration of railroad as the mode of transportation for the world, we go through these shifts where you have large workforces that are typically tied to the old way, and we're going to have to go through these uh, changes as a result. So there absolutely will be pushback. Uh, this will be, this goes back to where I believe the governments and the politics associated are going to have to have the strength to look forward and help those uh, workforces retool. And, and that's obviously a big piece of the question uh, today. Think about Uber, all the folks that are Uber drivers can earn extra money and, and have, or even a career around 
of that space that eventually it goes away and and what do they do next but we're seeing that in many spaces and and related to this speaking of folks leading the edge at some level amazon is known for the robots they're effectively little autonomous cars in the warehouses and run on their tracks and we'll every once in a while hear about amazon employee getting injured or killed by these things because of the interaction between the human and the robot so we're going to be taking that kind of insight and data that because your point if that happened and it does happen right there was an announcement where an uber vehicle ended up um hitting a woman well it comes out later that she'd stepped into traffic and a human would have hit her too but what we hear is someone died from an uber car it's autonomous the machine killed a person so suddenly it's yeah right so that's where I think the, the strength of the government to be committed to, we're going to see this through, and the willingness of the consumers to accept the new direction, I think those are the way, ways we'll overcome some of the uh, natural pushback, the fear, as well as the redeployment of workforces. Getting back to what the theme of this podcast is, which is electric vehicles, certainly autonomous cars aren't exclusive when it comes to electric vehicles. I drove in a um, Infiniti G50 around Tokyo for about an, an hour in autonomous car as part of a, a media thing and, you know, gas car and it worked, but it seems that electric vehicles seem to be a better fit for autonomous vehicles. Why would that be? It's all about maintenance, dependability. It's about, you know, there's so much more uh, effort that goes into a gas combustion vehicle I, I know I recently uh, purchased a new electric car and when they handed it off to me, they're like, we'll see you in two years for maintenance, right? Those are the kinds of conversations you want to have about autonomous. So you can focus on the technology and the AI and not be worried about the platform, basically. And certainly from fleets, that's the idea too, right? Like a taxi network or something like that. It just, it's, it's more appealing for sure. Low maintenance, less moving parts, literally. And the whole uh, cost structure around the engine itself all shifts now, you can take that money and push it towards the batteries and the artificial intelligence rather than worrying about the, the engine. Okay, I'm going to get you out of here on this last question. And again, I refer to my trip to Mercedes-Benz in Silicon Valley, where a very bright, he's probably like 25, a Berkeley math guy, just incredibly smart. So I asked him over lunch, when am I going to be able to um, hail a cab at an airport that's going to be autonomous? And, and remember, this was five years ago. He told me five years from now, and he guaranteed it. <laughs> um, so, so I'll pose that question to you five years on. When am I going to be able to walk out of uh, LAX or YVR here in Vancouver and, and uh, hop in an autonomous car that will take me home? So first, I believe that we're going to see the consumer autonomous vehicles before we see the mass fleet autonomous vehicles. So I think to answer your question, I do think within three or four years, you'll be able to buy yourself an autonomous car for home. I don't know. I think there will be city by city and by country when we'll have the fleets of taxis, for example, that are, are at that level. That might still be a decade away. Because again, back to government management, the, the fleet components, uh, the, the people's willingness to adopt. I just think about something as simple as, and then plus the pushback, that's a huge example of, you know, we had so many problems with Uber who had drivers, never mind. Uh, no driver in it. Uh, we're going to have huge push in that industry to push this out as far as possible before we see the large fleets for that transportation purpose like that. So I, I'd say it's probably a decade. That's Mark Concannon, autonomous vehicle technology expert and CEO of Concannon Business Consulting. Every year, roughly 1.3 million 
people die in car accidents worldwide, an average of 3,287 deaths per day. In Canada, that number hovers around 2,000 a year, with a further 10,000 people seriously injured in traffic incidents. It's somewhat ironic that despite the fact our vehicles have never been safer, due to design, materials, and onboard technology, the annual number of deaths and injuries have not seen a significant drop over the years. A major contributor is distracted driving, or put another way, people using their phones while at the wheel. Some of us consider autonomous or self-driving vehicles to be a threat to the pleasure we get from driving. That's fair. But the reality is the technology will save lives and injuries, and the pain and suffering for all those involved. I'm often reminded when I drive over the Lionsgate Bridge, with oncoming traffic just a few feet away, what an autonomous technology engineer told me a few years ago. She said that in 100 years from now, people will look back in amazement and terror to think we piloted our own 4,000-pound vehicles through busy traffic. It will be a similar sentiment to how we today view the 19th-century practice of surgical amputation without anesthetic. That's it for this episode. Much thanks to my guest, Mark Concanon, producer extraordinaire Darm McWana, and you for joining me on another electrifying journey down the EV highway. We always welcome your comments and criticisms via email at pluggedin at postmedia.com. For your dose of all things automotive, be sure to check out driving.ca, where you'll find the best in breaking news, videos, and reviews. Check out the site's comparison tool for head-to-head shopping, and sign up for the Blind Spot newsletter delivered to your inbox every Saturday morning and featuring a roundup of the past week's most important and most entertaining automotive news. And be sure to subscribe to Plugged In wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. That way you'll never miss an episode, and you'll also be able to listen to all the episodes from seasons 1, 2, and 3.